Welcome to Tiny House Tales, a podcast about the experiences of people who have joined the tiny house movement. I'm John Weisbarth. And I'm Zach Giffen. Enjoy as we give listeners a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the absolute joys and inherent challenges of living tiny. Together, we'll seek to unlock the successful strategies for minimalist living and learn more about how tiny living has made a big impact on people's lives. Entertaining and informative. Tiny House Tales is mandatory listening for anyone who has ever dreamed of downsizing or has simply craved a more simple lifestyle. Welcome to Tiny House Tales. Nailed it. All right, Zach, today's podcast is kind of about stories, and I know you have a story for me and an outdoorsy story for me because I saw some incredible pictures on your Instagram of a river rafting trip that I was immediately jealous of. I thought you were going to call me out for having blushed cheeks, but really I've been (laughs) in the sun for eight days in a row going down the Salmon River, the middle fork of the Salmon River. It's a pretty incredible stretch of land here in the United States. I saw Alex was with you and like, it was like a full, like, like looked like a party. It looked like a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, if you've never been rafting before, it's kind of like camping only you can bring everything and anything. And so, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty good party. And we got invited by some beautiful people and, you know, the stretch of river that we were on, it actually cuts through something called the, the Frank church river of no return wilderness and it's like the largest chunk (laughs) sounds totally inviting (laughs) yeah the river of no return perfect it's an amazing name for an amazing place but it's the largest chunk of protected wilderness in the lower 48 and so you're very remote it's very much off grid and it's i mean beyond just being a fun time and and river rafting it's just like an amazing experience to just get that checked out you know no cell service for 8 days just your feet in the sand you know hanging out with buddies it's amazing i would recommend it to anyone it's restorative right it's restorative yeah it, yeah cuz just looking at you with your stupid grin and your rosy cheeks you're like it's the same kind of thing that reminds me of like when I'll go surf in Mexico or something and you're just, yeah. you just get to do this thing. You have no worries except like, and you're in the water, which I think it has is like a real, real thing. And the part that's so fun and the part that's going to bring us to our guest that I love is the part at night, at the end of the day, sitting around the fire, your belly is full. And now you're recapping the stories of like whatever happened that day, maybe whatever wave or rapid or whatever. And that part is magical. That part I feel like goes back to the beginning of humans, like Mm -hmm. sitting around a fire, staring into the caveman TV and telling stories. Yeah. yeah. The the caveman TV was very strong on this trip. It was kind of a new moon. So there wasn't any moon and you're out there and the stars are just unbelievable. I saw the most incredible shooting star meteor that literally burned across the sky and then left a trail that you could see for, you know, maybe a minute after it was there. I didn't even know that could happen. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's those kind of experiences, those kind of stories that led today's guest Fitz Cahal, I believe, and Fitz, I'll have to hear the story from you, but it was that kind of experience, that connection to the outdoors, the storytelling that led you 
to become a podcaster, a filmmaker, a naturalist, if you will, someone just really connected to the outdoors and, and spreading that word. So welcome to the show, Fitz. Thanks for having me. Does that sound accurate at all? Yeah, no, no, that's 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 totally perfect. I mean, it's on point. Is is a uh, I started actually out as a writer because that was like a path into doing this way back in the day in the in the late nineties or two thousand. So I so I started out as a journalist and I grew up in Florida and I grew up in the suburbs of Florida and I fished some, you know, like my mom had the ability to like teach me how to like pluck a snail off the seawall and like put a hook on it and throw it out and, you know, catch like little tiny fish in the intercoastal waterway. So I, the outdoors were a part of my life, but I had a sense kind of growing up in, in Florida that there was, you know, these National Geographic magazines would come in and you'd see all these people doing these really interesting things all over the world using science or using skills. And to a kid from Florida, it was like a mystery how you became something like that, right? That looked cool. It gave me the sense that there was something beyond going and hanging out at the mall. And slowly but surely, I just figured ways out to end up in that world. I mean, fishing was like the weird little gateway into it, but pretty soon it was, it was like one summer I worked on a farm and they were like near a, near a, a, water, you know, like a big waterway. And I learned how to canoe that summer. And then it was like rock climbing. And, you know, I found, I walked into a climbing gym and I found rock climbing and I was like, what? And then pretty, you know, two weeks later, I was like, I got to go do this for, for real outside of a climbing gym. And, and I just, I went down that path. I wasn't raised in that world. I wasn't, that wasn't a part of my existence, but I was just fascinated by it all. And I ended up being able to kind of marry a way to make a living through journalism with this passion for the outdoors. And that was, you know, that was a tricky thing to do. Like writing, freelance writing is a really difficult way to make a living. And right there was this moment where I kind of thought, hey, I'd, I'd found all these stories that hadn't sold, you know, and they were my favorites, but the stories that sold were about the greatest athlete doing the hardest thing or, you know, 10 ways to I don't know, destroy a vacation town. You know, it was like these kind of sort of cookie cutter articles, right? And I I was like, I, yeah. I lived in this place. I'd slept in the, you know, I'd lived out of the back of my car. I'd had all this, I'd shaped my life to like kind of work odd jobs and then cover these stories. And I had some stories that I thought were really cool. And I loved radio and it was right at the point when podcasting was starting in 2006, 2007. And as a sort of last ditch effort to be like, well, I got to do something else with my life. But I got these last stories I started the Dirtbag Diaries. And basically I told these I took these stories that hadn't sold to magazines and I put them out. And it was one of those moments where I emailed, you know, my 30 friends who had had a lot of adventures with and it was like, hey, I made a thing, check it out. And, you know, as someone is wont to do when they've started a podcast, you look at the numbers and you're like, oh, cool, my 30 friends listened to it. And the next day that was 300 people had listened to it. And then the next day, 3,000 yeah. people had listened to it. And I knew in that moment that, that my life had changed, you know, or that I was like on a different path to sort of realizing the stream I'd had of, of, of just being able to marry the thing that I love doing and the community that I love being a part with, with a way to make a living and a way to continue it on as a way, you know, just, just to be like, well, these stories inspired me. How can we find a bigger audience for them? And it all worked out that that's kind of what happened is that there were you know, a bunch of kids because it was super clunky technology where you had to like download it to iTunes and then put it onto an, you know, like an iPod where maybe you burned it to a CD. I mean, it was ridiculous what the hoops you had to jump through to listen to this stuff in the in the beginning. Um, yeah. But there were kids in college dorms that were finding it 
And through time, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's grown into this incredible community, this, this awesome storytelling project that's way beyond my own adventures because, you know, it turns out it takes, you have to spend some time in an office to, to do that and can't be adventuring all the time. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a wild, wild career. Well, I feel like the, the storytelling aspect of your life is obviously what's taken over. Yeah. But I don't want to downplay your athleticism as well. Right. I mean, because we kind of said, oh, I found rock climbing. I mean, you're a pretty accomplished rock climber. And, you know, I think that like in order to have the 30 friends that you're talking about, I mean, you, you kind of had to be, I don't know if you consider yourself elite, but it's probably because you hang out with like the real elite athletes in the sport. But I, I feel like, you know, it just should be said for the audience that like, you know, Fitzka Hall is quite quite a quite an accomplished climber as well. I try to do things well when I do them, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm not anymore. I'm like the soul. I'm like the dad soul climber now that just goes to the gym, and I'm like one of the older people there, and that's it's all good. But yes, back in the day, I, I committed. I was definitely like pretty committed to to living that life and and developing that craft, and and I was surrounded by some people that went on to be professional athletes or you know, that are, that are also creatives that are, you know, still working for National Geographic. So it was this really cool time where I was surrounded by people that, that were trying to push both the sport and sort of the, the creativity surrounding the outdoors as well. So it was, it was a cool moment to be involved in. Did you ever consider actually trying to pursue becoming a professional athlete yourself? You know, I wasn't quite there in all honesty too. I probably had like a talent sort of level that I was about to hit. But I just didn't have the access to to figuring out how to really enter that like super elite tier. Like I was, you know, in that elite tier where I could go tie into some tie in and climb with somebody who was a professional athlete. But I wasn't I wasn't quite at that level, and I just don't think that I I one totally had the drive to do that. And then I would have had to figure out how to train exceptionally well to overcome a talent gap that probably existed. So I never really took it seriously. No. In that, in that regard, I took took climbing seriously, but not falling in on a professional level. I was just saying, I find it interesting, though, that I assumed you would have been like Zach, who grew up in Gold Hill, like population 40, you know, in the mountains. The fact that you were from Florida and had to kind of real, like, Zach could trip out of his front door and find adventure there in the mountains. It sounds like you, you had to seek it out at a young age. And I just find it really interesting that there was something in you that was burning in you to continue to find that, to go work on a farm, to learn these things. Like where did that drive come from? Was it just always in you? Did you see it from someone else around you? Because you kind of had to work hard to find adventure early on. Both my parents are interesting people that did it, you know, kind of, my mom was in the art world. So there were creative people in our household and in our orbit. That wasn't necessarily my path, but I saw people that did have different sort of alternative paths through the modern day world, I guess, like on, on that level. And and my dad had been a farmer and I don't know, you know, my parents had just been willing to try things and do things differently. And I think that that rubbed off on me and, and they didn't like the outdoors much at all. Like that wasn't there, but they gave me a sense that, hey, there's, there's a world out there and go explore <laughs> it. And I hate being bored. Like I despise that now as i'm older i'm like occasionally once once or twice a year that feeling of will creep in of being like i'm bored and i relish it 
But when I was a teenager, I felt like I was bored. And I just, I don't think there's much of, you know, in my life, I'm like, you got to figure out how to not be bored. And I would figure out how to do it with music. I played music a ton as a kid and just would sort of dive into that. I would just kind of ride my bike around town sometimes like by myself and, you know, at night just being like, well, whatever, I'll just go take a bike ride. So I think that there was just that side of I didn't like that feeling of boredom and I would just figure ways out to not have it. And it wasn't that I was ADHD or like hyperactive at all. It just I was like, hey, I think life's too short to be bored. And I had that sense from a really young age of that. And I think that that's probably what helped me kind of come up with these ideas or figure out ways to go, you know, to get closer to, to a life that I envision living. You know, when I met you, Fitz, I mean, in full disclosure, we had worked together probably around the time that you started the uh, the podcast. Yeah, it's probably a few years afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like late 2000s. And I think kind of when I was mentioning John earlier, when when you met me, I feel like that was a little bit of in the prime of my own dirtbaggery. And yeah. I say that with like, as a badge of honor, you know, in terms of that, you know, as a skier, a lot of people don't really know this, but it was a huge piece of my life. And, you know, I really was going for the professional track and I kind of started getting a reputation at that time of not, not necessarily for like my prowess as a skier, but as more of just like my unrelenting dedication to having that be, you know, as just being full on dedicated hardcore, right? It gave me this pride, this sense of pride that I, I was so passionate about it. And it, it definitely came along with some sacrifice in my life, right? And it was that, I guess, the sense of being a dirtbag a little bit where you're putting a lot of the other, the types of things that most people would look at as like mandatory for their happiness. You kind of set those aside in order to put everything that you have into following your passion. That's one of the reasons that I was really excited to have you on the show, because I feel like as somebody who's been a part of the climbing scene and as much as you have been for as long as you have been, and then to take it and to turn it into this another podcast that was called The Dirtbag Diaries, you're somewhat of an expert in kind of understanding that culture that honors the pursuit of adventure and the pursuit of experience over material possession. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth here. And Fitz, I'd love to hear your response to this because Zach and I have talked about this offline. I don't know if we've done this on the show before, but when you call someone a dirtbag in most of the world, like, oh, I guess we're going to have a fight now. You call Zach a dirtbag. He lights up. It's a badge of honor. You named your podcast that. Can you give our listeners your definition fits of what a quote dirt bag is within the world and the realm that Zach is talking about. Yeah, no, it's, you're hundred percent right. Is in most it's most circles like it's a, definitely an insult, but it's actually cool to understand where the the term developed out of, and it came out of Yosemite in the 1960s and 1970s, and that was what many people called the the or think of the golden era of rock climbing in America. It was when all the gear was coming together. They had the right people and thinkers and athletes that were tackling these huge walls that no one ever thought would be climbed. And 
it's even it's it's wild to think about this because it got so much attention that the same way that there were news trucks for for Tommy Caldwell when he was doing the Don Wall or some of the coverage that Alex Honnold got for soloing El Cap, that actually happened in the 1960s and 70s where they would have like news guys on top of El Cap, you would hiked around from the back, you know, filming these 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 sort of legends of climbing, topping out El Cap for the first time. Anyway, this collection of people, and there was people like Warren Harding, Yvonne Chouinard, who started Patagonia later on, uh, just an incredible collection of individuals, not very large. They had to figure out how to stay in Yosemite and the level of commitment, especially at that stage, to climb these walls is that, you know, these were like summer long endeavors and there wasn't a lot of time to work and they would just kind of figure out how to live at the sort of barest level in order to what little resources they they did have went into the gear, making new gear, developing gear, the time they took. And so that's where that term dirtbag came from is is sleeping in the dirt in Yosemite at that era. And it's 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 expanded and I think you can use it in a lot of different outdoor sports these these days and and people get it and it's it's that sense of somebody who just is going to figure out a way to do the thing they feel needs to be done in their world. For me now, I've, I think I've expanded it beyond just like a climber is I, I think that there's like an, a sort of ethos to it of, hey, sometimes you don't, you know, doing the thing you love or that sort of lights you up, you're not guaranteed to, to make a living doing it or you're not, you're certainly not guaranteed to make a lot of money. But there's value in, in doing things that, that you find to have value in them, even if the rest of the world doesn't see it, right? And I think that that's that's how like a lot of innovation happens in this world. I think that that's kind of sometimes underscored is like it, you know even even the level of like I think hobbies are a good thing because if you think about it, I don't know. Let's take microbrewing, right? Like take something like that, and it all started because somebody had a hobby of <laughs> beer drinking and making beer, and. <laughs> And, and like that became Sierra Nevada brewing, right? And then that became a, you know, a, a million other. So like hobbies have a way of developing into things that actually are valid in this world. And I, I do think the outdoors are, are now fully valid and you can make a living doing it. But I think it starts with that root of being like, sometimes you're, you just, you have to care irrationally about something that no one else cares about. And figuring out how to shape your life to do that thing is going to be a part of it. And I think that's the ethos behind the term these days and certainly the ethos behind the show. I think it really comes down to one of the hardest things in life to accomplish, which is finding purpose. You know, mm, that, yeah. you know, that's the the reason that even though I was living in a van, you know, and I might have not smelled all that well. Definitely. Hold on. Not might. <laughs> definitely didn't smell that well. I've been with you in the South okay. in the summer, even now. So, OK, well, all right. So I, definitely. I definitely could have showered more than I was. But the thing about it is that there was my self-esteem was intact. You know, my sense of self-worth was intact because I was so purpose-driven. There was no question about what it was that I was doing with my life and and what my my agenda would be. And I think, you know, number one, that's that's a beautiful thing whenever anyone can find something that they feel so confident on that this is where they should be, right? But I think when it comes to the tiny house world, there's so much of the time, there's this idea that, oh, where there's these sacrifices that you have to make in order to live in tiny homes. And what, I, what I've come to believe is that it, that word sacrifice is not correct. And really what it is, is it's a trade-off, right? It's not a sacrifice. It's you are exchanging one pleasure or one 
goal, which might be to build a big house and live in all of this space. And you're exchanging that for a different goal. And I think that the common denominator between all of these activities that are really kind of driven on on seeking experience and accomplishment is that you are exchanging, a lot of times what it is, is that people end up exchanging some of these kind of life pleasantries for the ability to go and pursue those experiences. And uh, yeah, so I don't look at it as a sacrifice. I just look at it as a trade-off. That's inevitable though, right? Because oftentimes, most times, that trade-off is happening in the other direction. You're trading off your passions or that thing that lights you up because you're like, oh, whatever reason, societal pressure, your own feelings, you have to have this thing. That's interesting. I think that trade-off is 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 kind of going to happen no matter what. It's just it's up to you to decide well, which direction and and what are you going to favor. Yeah, and and I think that just like your house, right? Your purpose in life it it transitions over time. Like your need for space is not the same at one moment of your life. Well, you're, you're also your, your sense of purpose and your goals for yourself transition throughout life. And I, I know, you know, Fitz having known you and know a bit about your story, I know that that's certainly probably something that happened to you. And maybe you can speak about how your goals or your sense of purpose that was so focused on like this experience and how can I go and have a, have a life like what you saw as a child growing up in Florida, exchange that with, all right, now my purpose is this other thing is, is expanding and going into my professional career and, you know, starting a family and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I, those, those were things that I kind of in the back of my head, I, I knew that I always wanted, even when I was in the middle of the sort of like wandering around the, um, American West and sometimes, you know, abroad and, and taking these incredible climbing trips. Like I, I knew at some point that, that I had that sense that you're going to evolve, right? Like I, you could kind of tell too, you could, you know, it's sometimes you'd see some of the older climbers that hadn't sort of adjusted or evolved and they didn't always look happy. And, and I, I would sort of get that sense too. But yeah, I mean, I, I got, I got one excited about creating a space to tell stories that I felt had had value inside of our community and you know also because it was sort of early in the internet world i think that we were able to take some of the things we learned and sort of put them under the underneath the umbrella of marketing and branding and and help companies do that help conservation organizations that were working on protecting the land use those same tools that we were using to sort of get the word out and so i'm here in seattle i love seattle I didn't necessarily think I would end up here. I went to college here and then kind of like wandered and had my stuff, you know, like had a few think kind of extra things like that I'd leave in a friend's basement. And somehow I just ended up back here and we built a business here. We built a family here. I have two boys, a seven, 11 year old. They're, they're incredible. And, you know, we've woven the outdoor world in, into how we've raised them and it's been great, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think that on a level, like there's a side of my life today that looks very much like pretty normal, well-adjusted life where I go to work, I have an office, you know, I ride my, my bike three miles in, into work and ride it home. And some of those priorities there is I think like now today, I think I prioritize, I try to always move. Like I always try to spend some amount of time outdoors. I'm really fortunate. We live in, live in the city, as I said, but you know, right close to our house, there's actually this little incredible Creek and green area with these woods 
the other day it was it was wild we, i took the boys down there before dinner they just needed to kind of have a little more space than just driving us nuts in the house while like mom finished up work or whatever and we walk down and there's a little gravel bar little beach kind of there and we walk in and an owl swoops over our heads and the next thing we know that there's actually three owls probably like a, a parent owl and two baby owls and we spent just a half an hour, you know, watching these creatures that were, and they actually flew back down towards us and sat, you know, probably about 10 feet away from us on a, like, bu- uh, like a, like a branch of a tree and you could see all the feathers. It was super cool. Right. And it's just that, that for me is like the essence of kind of like how I'm finding purpose now is I, I've tried to find, it's not always about these like huge, big peaks with like a 2000 foot r- route of them. I'm looking for kind of these smaller moments and, and I still love you know, I still love climbing. I still love getting to the top of something. I still love, I love riding my mountain bike, you know, all those things. But I think that as I've aged, I think it's finding purpose in, in the smaller moments, right. That are, that are more accessible for somebody who's, you know, got a, for all intents and purposes kind of has a nine to five. Right. And I look for that. And I, and I, I found myself for a while being unhappy, you know, as, as the sort of business became successful, it was busier. It was working. I was traveling all the time. I was going to these incredible places, but there was a side of it where I just, I, I felt like I also wasn't always living my own life or I didn't have enough time to see those small details that as I grew up, grew older, really mattered to me. And it's funny today I, I live, you know, I kind of even tightened the world that I inhabit more, especially as my boys have, have gone there. Like fortunately we live in an incredible place, like the, the Cascades and the Olympic mountains, like we have all these wonderful places we can go explore on a weekend trip. But there's also the reality of like, you know, Seattle's gotten bigger. It's hard to get out of. The traffic is terrible. You know, yeah, all the excuses that you could have. And I, I think there was a period where I just got kind of like, I felt trapped here. I felt, you know, trapped a little bit by the success and just the hours I had to work and I like, couldn't get out, do the things I liked, you know, which are all some of the things I was like trying to talk about on the show. And I think there was this magical moment for me and I think there's a lot of parallels because to, to the tiny home movement that, that you guys have, you know, are such sort of advocates for is for me, I, I had this dawning moment where, hey, you know, I think I'm used to thinking of where I live as as 100 square miles or like, you know, 50, 50 square miles or kind of like that sort of footprint. And that wasn't working for me anymore. I found that I was wanting to be somewhere where I couldn't be or I was always in another place. And I rethought kind of that geographic understanding of where I lived. And I looked at it and thought to myself like, hey, what do you have, you know, pick a point and, you know, take a three mile radius and make that circle from that point. And maybe that points your office, maybe that points your home. I I picked my office just for the sake of it. And I thought about it and like, what do I have? What do I have in that space? And, you know, one, I have a place like that little ravine near my house, but I have two, or actually I have three lakes that I can go swim in or, you know, stand up paddleboard or take my kids out on. I've got all these kind of nice trails running through natural spaces. And at the same time, I have like, there's like the Husky Stadium, the University of Washington Husky. I mean, there's like Saturday nights in the fall, there's 70,000 people cheering football. Like, that's pretty cool. Like a block away from where I am right now, there's a there's an incredible, probably 800 person music venue that that brings in creative artists all from all over the world. Like, that's rad. So if I looked at my world and I thought, hey, it's not this bigger area, but this little small spot, think about how lucky you are and tap into all that stuff. Tap into it, make it like own that and enjoy it and love it for what it is. And then, you know, when it's time to try to go out mountain biking, just accept that that's 
that's a that's like that's got to be icing on the cake, right? That's an extra. That's a splurge, I guess, on a level where you're like, cool, I'm really thankful for that. I still go do all that, but I'm thankful in my day to day. And I just find those little moments where, you know, I, I don't know, maybe after, you know, sometimes it'll just be like, I'll take a run at nine o'clock and catch the sunset over the Olympics, you know, on the on the ridge behind, you know, or the neighborhood behind my house and, and just have those little moments. And, you know, that, that's it's been interesting to see how my own personal desires have evolved where I'm like less interested of being like, we're going across the world to go do something. It's not to say that that's bad or doesn't appeal to me or I wouldn't go do it for the right trip. But I feel like I, more and more I'm looking for that sort of quote unquote balance and, and happiness in where I live. And I do that, I think, through finding the small things and and just embracing kind of that like smaller sort of radius of where where I exist, where I have fun, where, you know, like where my family is, like all that. So it's, yeah, it's it's been interesting. You know, I kind of feel like as, as someone who's like been an advocate for adventure and they sort of doing these cool things and exploring the world and, and learning about the world, not just exploring it, but like actually learning about the places you go. It's now funny to sort of feel like, oh, I'm kind of a homebody these days. And people kind of laugh and poke fun at me and be like, oh, you're, you're kind of like that. But it's true. And I, and I love it. And it, I don't know, it just seems to make sense to me on a lot of different levels. Boy, I like a lot of what you said there. I mean, there's so there, there's so much and you're a great storyteller. Gosh, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts because, you know, for me, I think when you're young, when you're driving around and you're living on your car and you're climbing and Zach's doing the same thing with skiing, I'm working overnight, say, you know, on a television station and you're like hustling and you love that. You're like eating burritos, you're sleeping on couches, you're doing whatever, but it's easy to do that when you're young. Yeah. And as, and then that transition, as you get older, as you said, now you've got a couple of kids and a, and a job, like how do you maintain that? How do you find that passion? And your answer sounds like you sort of, mm, I guess you, you get a little more detailed, maybe a little bit more present. And I, I really liked that, like finding that joy in those little small things that can be just as joyous because that's something that I think I struggle with at times is yeah, in this middle part of life where things, yeah, you don't, you have to really, really fight hard for those big trips. And they don't come very often. And so you kind of can get in that lull where you haven't done that or you feel like oh, that's the only thing that you can do and you're just muddling through. So really like that idea of the smaller geographic area and like zooming in on it. Mm -hmm. As you said, like, oh, what do I have that I can get to every single day? I think that's powerful. It kind of reminds me of, I think, what happened almost on a broad level during the pandemic where... All of a sudden, people's ability to travel was not really an option. You know, a lot of the things that people like to do in groups all of a sudden couldn't happen and almost forced people all over the globe to start to reevaluate what is a little closer to home, you know, and even like what they can do within their own home. What did you discover, Zach? What did you <laughs> discover in that time? Well, seriously. You know, I was a little bit of an anomaly because, you know, before then, John, we had been on this crazy, you know, cross country, never ending journey of building tiny homes. And I was exhausted. You know, that joy of traveling had been replaced by the kind of this almost desire for a little bit more of a routine in my life. Like I remember thinking my little brother was telling me about his soccer team and you know, going on Tuesday nights and then afterwards they'd go out for beers together. And I was like, oh man, that sounds that awesome. Sounds like good. this, 
this thing you get to look forward to week after week. And I don't have any of that. Like my life is really, it's full of adventure, but there's no certainty. Right. You know, so I was a bit of an anomaly. I was just really ready for some rest and, and a break. And it came at a great time for me to just put the brakes on everything. So I was primed to do nothing (laughs) yeah and just like reconnect with friends right because you know that's one of the sacrifices of of having a really adventurous life is the relationships sometimes get sacrificed or there's a trade-off i'm not going to call it a sacrifice it's a trade-off right (laughs) but i i think that you know before the pandemic and this is maybe more relatable to a lot of people is i i remember when I was 15, I actually got diagnosed with a bone disease and it was, I won't go into it, but it meant that I couldn't play soccer and I couldn't ski. And, you know, at that time in my life, that was kind of my world. Like everything else was secondary and I had to be on crutches for almost seven months. And one of the best things that ever happened was that was getting that bone disease because what I did was I started to play the guitar and I and I started taking guitar lessons and I started looking for okay I can't do these things that I I love but what can I do with what I have and it's not like I'm an amazing guitar player John you know that pretty good though it's turned into the a very joyous part of my life right where I'm not any really a lot better than I was by the end of that seven months, but it's kept me entertained during the downtimes. It's it's connected me with people that I otherwise wouldn't have. And actually, it's this um, really amazing thing that I get to share with my wife now. It enabled me to evolve and to absorb a piece of this blessed world that I would have probably never gotten the opportunity to do. Maybe the pandemic has done that for some people as well. So Fitz, is that just about being open, do you think? Being able to pivot? Because that's what I'm hearing. What, what I'm hearing is this thing of, oh, I, I've i had this one thing that has driven me and has been my passion. Now that's very hard to do for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And the ability to not sit and lament that and go like, oh, well, this sucks, getting old, whatever all that thing is, go through your midlife crisis. Instead, pivoting and finding three owls in the forest yeah. or a guitar. Yeah. Well, it reminded me too, because uh, the, the, during the pandemic, just I actually went back and um, I learned how to play the piano. That was that was something, you know, I had been musical when I was a, a teenager and, and I had never really, that was like one of the instruments I hadn't learned then. And I always thought that was cool. I'm just going to pitch us real quick. You on the piano, Zach on the guitar. I'll be rhythm guitar and Zach's wife can sing. We'll call ourselves a dirtbags. <laughs> okay, there you go. Done. Continue. Just yeah. want to pitch it out there while yeah, I was, it was there. It was great. It was like such an awesome way to sort of open up, your, you know, my mind in, in a way. I do think that there's there's that that sense of of pivoting, right? And I think so much of this is right now in our culture, I think there's so much discussion about happiness, right? And like, how do you be happy? And there's a lot of discussion about anxiety too like we hear that word a lot and what does that and what does anxiety mean and it's you know obviously there's there's like clinical reasons for it but i think it's also this word that's kind of in a way become sort of used when you're when you're uncomfortable or maybe not in where you want to be is you're like oh i feel feel anxious and it, it's it's almost like I, I don't know i just think a lot of thought goes into i mean we sell millions of dollars of books about happiness and there are podcasts dedicated there's wellness there's all you know right there's this huge industry around that thought and i think for me i am not like i I, that's what i like i'm accepting that not everything in life is going to be easy and that the dark parts are going to be tough or the the moments of discomfort are they're just going to be a part of it but i think for me it's like i want to be happy and 
I think I'm willing to to bargain, you know, to sort of make trade-offs, I guess, on a level to find that best version I can. And I know it's not going to come from having a bigger house. I know it's not going to come from just taking relentless trips around the world. That's not going to do it for me. At this stage, I, I'm like, it's going to come through connection to people I love, to, to my friends, to, to my broader family, to the, the natural spaces that I've really come to learn because I've, I'm going back to the same places because I'm spending more time here. And, and that's, you know, that's me. And I think that that's kind of once I broke the, that sense of being like, this is what you should be doing versus this is what you maybe could be doing in a way, it was really easy to make that pivot, you know, versus like, you know, just that that feeling of like, oh, here's my old friend who's now on this National Geographic trip in Antarctica on, you know, seeing that on Instagram and not feeling like, oh, I'm missing out or how come I didn't, wasn't on that trip. You know, that, that feeling is just like, who, who wants to live like that? And I think that, you know, that, that same mechanism happens with materialism. It happens with all sorts of places in our world where people can kind of feel like they're missing out or they're not succeeding quite as much. And, and the reality is like, we kind of get to define what that term success means and live by that if we're lucky enough to. And, you know, I think that for me made that pivot and transition. I wouldn't say necessarily always like easy, but it wasn't hard either, I would say. Like it kind of... It, <laughs> It snapped. I mean, I just, I like, yeah, I definitely like that moment where that thinking about the three miles and being like, well, look at how awesome this three mile radius you live in is. And think about all the laughter that could be had with the friends there. And, you know, that, that was a, that was an easy trade off to make. I feel like mentally. I really like how you brought up the connections with other, right? Cause I think that mm, that yeah. is such a universal realization. It's like, you know, there's so many things that kind of bring temporary happiness, but like when it really comes down to it, you know, we are a tribal species and like what is so impactful for our long-term happiness and almost can, ex I mean, it can be, is proven to extend the years of your life is the connections that you have with, with others in your community and your sense of belonging. And I think, I think about it a lot from a housing perspective and almost like a city planning perspective because of you know, how tiny homes, you know, you can put them in backyards, you can put them in communities. They have this capacity to not only maybe help us address our needs for housing, but the, if we use them right, they can be a tool to help us kind of create more inclusive communities, communities where people have stronger interaction with each other. And I guess the question that I have is that, you know, we touched on how changes in the world and just changes to your life can force almost these like silver linings to occur, like these understandings of of new opportunities. And I think that humanity is going through a forced change right now. And I'll just say like, we're in July. I just heard on the radio today that it was the hottest month on record ever. And it could have been, you know, the hottest month for a uh, hundred thousand years on the planet. And so I think it's really occurring to people all over the world that whether we like it or not, we're going to have to make some changes right and like mm -hmm. i see how housing and the way that we build cities can be one of the most profound changes that we can make in terms of reducing our society's demand for energy and need for energy and my question really is is like i see a lot of opportunity where in that process in this kind of forced change and forced transition 
for us to kind of reevaluate the way that we've been building our cities, using our housing to do exactly what you're telling me, which is to facilitate more connections, right? To, to kind of mm -hmm. combat the loneliness that's now become epidemic in our country and help people connect with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's, I mean, I think it's so funny because not that everything should be like, oh, what I learned from the pandemic, but but there's that saying, right? You know, like fences make good neighbors, right? Have you guys ever heard that? Like, oh yeah, yeah for yeah. sure, for sure. And I think that one thing that that I, in the last few years, have and as a result, and it was so cool because it got put put into action very clearly. Is I I met all, during the COVID times, like I met so many more of my neighbors, you know, because like before we were all just like kind of in our little tubes going to work, you know, bzz, 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 you know, everywhere all the time running kids to soccer, whatever it is. And I think that there was this sort of whew, collect, you know, sort of side, there's nowhere to go. And then all of a sudden you're talking with somebody at the park and, and, and my actual sense of like my core neighborhood and the number of people that I call friends in it is so much greater than it was four years ago. And that, that's really, I don't know, I think that's exactly what you're speaking to is like, what does it mean to, to have a home? Right. And to think about that and that idea of like one, that their their home could be better for your for the planet, but home could also be better for you. And and that's a cool that's a cool thing to think about when I when I get there. And you know, jumping back, it was it was wild during that period of time as we got to know those neighbors. Um my my wife had a, a biking accident and was really badly hurt. It was really scary. Fortunately she's okay now, but she broke her neck. You know, it was like we had a couple tense days at, at Harborview where we weren't really sure what her life would look like. And fortunately, it, she's 100% better now. You know, I mean, occasionally she's like, oh, my neck's bugging me a little bit. But, you know, it, it worked out perfectly. But in that moment, it was wild. All these people that I didn't know their names like two months earlier were coming by with like coupons for for Grubhub or, or gift, gift cards for pizza or whatever, you know, just to make sure that I was like, you know, they knew I was taking care of her. You know, we didn't have like because it was still locked down there wasn't a ton of support from our family that we could tap into and it was like the whole community just like kind of showed up for us in this moment and it was like a it was just a wild thing to see where i'm not sure that that would have happened three months earlier you know that all went down in, in may of 2020 i think and that deepened my sense of connection and my sense of community and my sense of home really what it is and i don't know it it strengthened that that more like excitement about hey my three my my three mile radius is pretty pretty incredible when you think about it yeah i mean that sense of connection as we've learned you know through academic study through our own experiences through covid it's so important and to zach's point housing can play a big role in that which is which is really interesting and when i'm thinking about just hearing you guys talk about it, i'm kind of thinking back to my own you know covid experience and it was the lack of connection that was really, really hard for me. We played it pretty close to the vest here because we potted with my parents and they're in their 80s. And we were like, OK, we're not going to screw this up. And so I really when I do feel the most sort of adrift, it's when I'm not making those connections. It's just it's just it's like, oh, yeah, it is that simple. And that does not require for me, you know, a surf trip to Baja. I can do that right here within a three mile radius. And I really, I just like that focus. And I, and I do think, you know, this is a tiny house tales podcast, but all that we've been talking about really is something that can fit within the tiny house world, especially the dirt baggery that we're talking about. Like, you know, the trade-offs to really discover what it is inside of you 
I had a therapist call it your inner David. Like, what is that thing? If it's art or guitar or sailing or adventuring or whatever the thing is, find out what it is, nurture that, and then manifest it. And that's what can bring you the happiness. It doesn't mean you don't have trials or tribulations, but it's like being true to yourself. And there's so much in our modern world that gets in the way of that. Oftentimes, the house that you're in really gets in the way of that just because of the cost to maintain it. And so the way to, you know, a way to be able to nurture that more and manifest that more is certainly part of the tiny house world, I think. It's really interesting. I think there's a lot of fear that a lot of people have, especially, you know, when you're talking about tiny homes specifically is like in that transition right? It's like, okay, well, what it's going to be like if I, if I move into a smaller space, how am I going to be able to handle that? You know, it's a lot of it is justifiable, but I think that, you know, if you can search out those silver linings and understand that there will be a trade-off, but there, anytime there's an exchange, you're going to be getting something and, and trying to make sure that what you get out of it is something that is really very important to you. And, and I think that, when we're talking about tiny homes, you can't overlook the fact that they're illegal a lot of places. And so not only are is there fear of individual level of moving into a smaller space, but there's a lot of fear from kind of city leaders and politicians about like, if we change some laws, what's going to happen, right? And I think that one of the things that's very clear to me is that it's a trade-off. And it's just like me in my life when I was only focused on skiing and only focused on, on soccer. It's like I was terrified of maybe having a season or two where I couldn't really do those things. But the trade-off was that I learned guitar, right? And it's so obvious in hindsight that it, my life is so much more rich because of that. And so when I talk to advocates or when I advocate for tiny homes, I really try to focus in on not just like, hey, let's let people live in tiny homes, but more like, hey, if we utilize this type of living, uh, this type of structure correctly, we can actually enrich society. We can facilitate people's connections with each other. We know kind of combats loneliness and really makes people feel fulfilled. I guess my last question to you, Fitz, is that going back to that idea that the planet through climate change is forcing us into some adjustments, right? There is going to be some trade-offs. We may not have to, or we may not be able to justify taking those trips to Antarctica just on a whim, right? And I think that especially in the action sports world and the adventure world, there's a little bit of a built-in hypocrisy there because you have so much of it that is is like rooted in like going on these big adventures but at the same time the culture that surrounds these sports are so very much aware of the importance of protecting the environment right and so i mean you you just kind of already touched on it with the uh, 3 mile radius but like how do you see the action sports world, whether that's skiing or climbing. Oh, those are the two action sports. Uh, surfing, is that just those two? I would love to hear your thoughts on on how moving forward we can strike a balance where maybe people are kind of within the awareness of reducing their carbon impact or are making some changes. And if you were going to make a pitch on that to have that trade-off be worth it, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always dangers in maximalism, right? You know, like when you always get to the the sort of thinking, like you think about housing, biggest, right? Like you think about adventure, baddest, most out there, right? And those are there, but it's like, I would think about trips as a chance to learn, 
right? I think the other thing that makes humans really happy is learning, right? I think that that's, that's there. It was, you know, it's, it's like, it's wild. The actual, like, the word school is actually derived from an old Greek word that means leisure. And no one really think of, of school as leisure these days, right? But that idea Not my of son, like, at least, yeah. Yeah. Like, like that idea of that, oh, if you have leisure, you can learn, right? And, I, and so I think that that is, is like taking that time and thinking about like, hey, yeah, maybe you do want to, maybe you are super excited and you're like passionate about, I saw these two guys that were using paragliders or three guys that were using paragliders to ski these lines in Pakistan. It was incredible. It was like they were doing all these incredible they were climbing and then skiing off stuff and using the paragliders to get between there. And that's like an out there trip that requires going halfway around the world, right? And so take those moments and get excited about it and learn from it and take that learning and bring it back home. And I think where you get into trouble is when you're just always on the treadmill, right? And that's true in life. It's true in an adventure. But if you're always just like finishing a trip and you're like, I need the next one, maybe it's time to take a step back and say, well, why why do I need the next one, right? What am I getting out of that? And so part of the reason, as I, I say, is like, it's going to mean more if you don't do them all the time, first off. And when you know you're going to a place and why you're going versus just like, hey, I got offered a place on a trip. I, I don't know. I think there's just something to that. And everyone's going to have their process. Everyone's going to have their, their, their sort of growth through that point. But I do think that I, my pitch for it is, is that there's like magic in, in the places you do live. And there's magic in figuring out creative ways to have fun in those places. And I think that's every bit as rewarding as flying around the world to sit in a base camp, you know, with your good friend who you could be just hanging out with in the Cascades, right? You know, it's, it's that side of it is that thoughtful approach to it, I think is something I, I hope our adventure community kind of has a more heart to heart because like it, it does, it's getting harder for me to stomach the like climate change is so important, but don't mind this trip. I'm going halfway around the world. And I, and I know that there's a lot of different ways that we can have impacts and there's different platforms and there's people's jobs. But at the end of the day, it's like, we're going to have to think about this. Like, like, you know, I, I think one of the people I really look up to, um, Conrad Anker, who's a, a very famous climber who you know has been around the world, is, but he's kind of like settled more down into Bozeman these days and is sort of a, a mentor to a lot of people, said something about transitions. And he said, you know, the thing about transitions is that if you make them yourself, it's going to, you're going to have to make them either way. And it's either like you got to make it or someone's going to make it for you. And I think we find ourselves in that moment in time where it's like, hey, we got to rethink this. And Part of it, probably in our adventure community, is, is rethinking that. I want to add one thing, and I don't know. I, I, I jump it back to a question you or a statement you had about the tiny homes, and I don't know. I live in Seattle. I know there's been an explosion of sort of ADUs and 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 dadus and you know smaller, tiny, you know, like basically being able to put a couple different units on on one piece of property, which might have only had a house before. On that level, it's it's so interesting because I think one of the other things I saw in Seattle in the last ten years is that you know as as the sort of tech world, and I'm not picking on techies, you know, we all just do our thing, and there's some really cool things that are happening in that world. But as as like Amazon grew and all these big tech companies came in, you know, cost of living dramatically increased. Our housing did not keep up with what was demanded on it. You know, obviously it's resulted in housing issues for a lot of people. And there are a lot of people that are unhoused in Seattle. But it's also just the other, the other reality is that there's kind of less 
like intellectual diversity and and less creative people. A lot of creative people had to leave. And so there, I, like, I, here's a great example. Is there one of my favorite sort of opinion columnists uh, in the New York Times had this article. He He's based in Seattle, but he writes for the New York Times. And he had this article of like, Kr- you know, Kramer from Seinfeld. He's like, Kramer can't live in Seattle anymore. And Kramer, right, is like, you know, the, the guy that just shows up in the middle of the day, dubiously employed. You have no idea what Kramer does for a living, right? And yet, you know, he's this great character. And I, I felt like some of that started to disappear from Seattle is, is you know, and which is a place that's housed so much creativity through the years, right? And especially from a music standpoint, everything from Jimi Hendrix to Kurt Cobain, right? And it's like, it does, it does seem that thinking about having more affordable or smaller versions could lead to sort of communities that are more interesting, frankly, too, you know, that aren't just like more connections, but they're actually just more interesting and more diverse and cool. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I hope that that we continue to think like that because I think that's a, that's a, that's a neat thing to have inside of your community. You hit the nail on the head. And it's also a more interesting community when police officers and firefighters and teachers can also live in the same community they're serving. All these other things, you know, artists for sure. A very similar thing happened up in the Bay Area in San Francisco, which was like another really cool, quirky place. And all of the cool quirkiness that made San Francisco so desirable got pushed out. And that's something they're reckoning with too. And so, yeah, like the diversity in who lives in a community is part of that connection and part of the richness that makes a community awesome. Fitz, it's been an hour. Before we let you go, though, I just want to hear projects you're into, pitch what you're doing. You do a lot of creative stuff. Is there anything you want to talk about and throw out there right now? Yeah. Well, right now we've been we've been on crazy podcast town. So the Dirtbag Diaries has been going strong. The community continues to grow. During the pandemic, I actually started a, a side project Project with my friend Alex Honnold, and we've got another podcast called Climbing Gold, which kind of covers the past, present, and future of climbing. And it, we thought we'd only do one season, and we had a good time doing it, and it was successful. So we've kind of kept on, and yeah. So I've I've been super busy, just kind of just with the podcast side of the thing. I'm, I'm kind of excited, looking forward to to maybe getting working a little bit more on film again. But for right now, it's just it's it's podcast, podcast, podcast for me, and. I love it. And on your downtime, you come on our podcast. I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm into it. Well, Fitz, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lovely conversation, and uh, I wish you all the best with whatever podcast comes next for you, because I know it won't be the last, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And Fitz, call those 30 friends. Call those 30 friends and tell them about our podcast, because it seemed to work okay. for yours. <laughs> cool. Man, I really enjoyed that conversation. That was, I didn't know where it was going to go exactly. And it was very thoughtful. And it wasn't a ton of tiny house content, but I think it all related. But I just thought it was a really thoughtful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Fitz is awesome. I mean, Fitz is uh, just a wealth. Part of what I knew would be cool is that so much of the time when I tell people that I, you know, was a skier and they're like, well, what does that have to do with tiny homes? You're like everything. It, yeah, it's it's really to me it's not a big leap because I I know what the culture is about, you know. And and the culture of of skiers like this idea of being a ski bum has been a badge of honor within the ski culture for a long time. And 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 it's no different than, you know, 
being a dirtbag in the climbing world or you know being a beach bum in the surf world you know it's it's all the same same sort of thing it's like it's it's recognizing a river rat in that world yeah yeah all of these uh (laughs) all of these cultures around sports and occupations that are kind of all about the adventure and the experience you know they all kind of recognize that there's some trade-offs and if you really want to if you really want to dive deep into the things that you love, sometimes that trade-off can be, you know, found in in your living environment. But it's worth it because it's so beautiful. But I also I like the idea of like of of being like an older, like the way, you know, being a beach bum in your 20s is not the same as beach bum in your 40s or any of these other things or a dirt bag or whatever. Like it does kind of change a little bit, but you keep that same ethos. And that's what I thought was really interesting. It doesn't mean you have to live in your car and sacrifice everything. It is an ethos. It's a way of thought though, where you are setting your life up in a way where you can still pursue your passions, maybe not as far and as wide as before, but you still get to do that. And I think that's what I found very interesting about the conversation. And I will just say that, you know, obviously when you're younger, that sort of priority comes naturally, right? You're not thinking about like, you're not prioritizing your family. Yeah. You're just super selfish. You're just young. But a lot of times in people's lives, like that experience comes back, you know, later on after you've raised a family for a lot of people, they kind of recognize, Hey, I have all this opportunity, this freedom. I can revisit these passions that I once kind of prioritized so strongly. And uh, I think a lot of older people also just have a lot of gratification from kind of uh, getting the opportunity to reprioritize just uh, the things that really, truly give them joy. Well, one of my priorities and joy points is getting to talk to you each week, buddy. And I'm glad (laughs) that we were able to do it once again. Yeah. So, uh, Good seeing you, pal. Me too. Hopefully you get on a raft trip one year. Definitely do it. Oh my God. I've been talking about a raft trip for years. I want to do it so okay. badly. That is, and I want Perfect. to fly All right, fish. Well, when when I give you an invitation and you try to come up with some excuse, I'm going to remind you that you said that. Just play That's this episode. Right. <laughs> All right, John. All right, bye. I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>